Hello, everyone. <clears throat> I am Karen, and uh, I'm a grateful member of Alamon. Can you hear me? If I stand here, I don't want you to miss anything. <laughs> you sit in the back. Well, thank you for inviting us and uh, for meeting us, Terry. Terry isn't here. Terry isn't here. <laughs> And, uh, and Sherry <laughs> having dinner together. Uh, they kept announcing on the plane, we came from, from uh, Southern California, they kept announcing how many miles left to go to, to Detroit where we changed planes to come here. And I said to John, I think they're moving Detroit as we kept getting longer and longer. <laughs> it's a long flight. <sighs> well, uh, I hope there are some new Alanons in here. Uh, you know, we're new in Alanon much longer than you're new in AA. Did you know that? I don't know what it is, if we aren't as sincere or whatever, but some of us go in and out quite a bit. And uh, in, in Laguna Beach, uh, the big AA meeting, their open AA meeting, they always ask for new people that are sober under 30 days to stand up and then identify themselves. And then after 30 days, they don't ask them anymore, so you don't. And, uh, but uh, I don't know, we're no longer in Al-Anon. Maybe one of the things is I know we we don't have the law looking for us. I don't know if that <laughs> Anyway. If you're new and you have come into Al-Anon to find a way to sober up somebody in your family, uh, I think that's one of the best motivations of all for coming to Al-Anon. It won't work, but <laughs> you're here and you're going to find some answers for yourself, and that's what's wonderful. Uh, it says I'm from Laguna Beach, California. That's not really where I'm from. I was born long, long ago, far, far away, <laughs> in Lapland, Sweden. And I grew up with a full set of parents and an older sister, and my father drank. He was building a railroad up there, and uh, on weekends there were parties at our house, or somebody's house, and they was drinking and singing and dancing. And uh, I had, ever since I was real small, I've had a great need to straighten up people around me. <laughs> and if somebody laughed too loud or sang too loud, I'd tell them about it. So I got sent to my room a lot. Uh, when I was, uh, my father was, he was a lot of fun. You know, I remember when we were small. And he had a big Harley Davidson motorcycle with a sidecar. And he'd take my sister and me along in that once in a while, and that was lots of fun. But when he drank, I had no use for him. I just didn't want to be around him. When I was 10 years old, we moved to Stockholm, which is the big city in Sweden, the capital. And uh, my father's drinking increased down there. And now I began to have real problems with it. I, uh, I wanted to bring friends home from school. And I could never be sure that he wouldn't show up drunk. And I can remember my mother saying to me, now daddy's coming home, please don't say anything. Go to your room or go to a friend's house. And my daddy would come in and he was a big, big man. And uh, he was true for the day. 
he was just ready to go to bed. He, he didn't want to stir up anything. But I couldn't let him do that. If I had to prop him up, I was going to tell him about what I felt about his drinking, you know. And I'd go toe-to-toe with that big man, you know. And my mother had to hustle me out of the way many times. I uh, I quit school for a while when I was 15 because of his drinking. And I have discovered in Al-Anon that nobody made me quit school. That was my own idea. I uh, I wanted to make some money. I had discovered American movies, and I wanted to dress like June Allison and Gloria De Haven dressed. And uh, so I came home from school one day, and I said, I've got a job, and I've quit school, and I'm not going back. And they knew better than to argue with me. They just let me hang myself. So I couldn't make any kind of money. I ran errands in a little office, and... Uh, so I went back to school and I, but I had a little night job. I talked them into hiring me in one of those movie theaters. I lied about my age and I could sell chocolates there, you know, and that. And this was really the first peace and quiet my family had had because, you know, I was out of the way. See, my mother and my sister never faced my father and argued with him about his drinking. The summer I was 17, I was working in an office in Stockholm, and one of the southern branch people came up. And he was absolutely gorgeous. I'd never seen anyone like that in the movies, yes. But he was very pretty. And uh, all we women in the office, we whispered about this guy and wondered about him. And we used to straighten our seams when he came around. There's some of you who know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but he liked me and we became friends he, he arrived on 1st of June 1944 <laughs> this is so old most of you weren't even around <laughs> and uh, so the summer went by and then in the fall he asked me one Saturday what do you do on Saturday night and I said I go dancing at the Winter Palace doesn't that sound great? And it was. It was like the Palladium in Hollywood. Big place with a big band who played Glenn Miller music and Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman and all those good things. And he said, I'll come and dance with you. And so that was the beginning. He did. And uh, he was a great talker. I, I was a great listener. I, I didn't really have much experience in anything. But uh, he told me about all his conquests. <laughs> oh, men are such fools. <laughs> anyway, but he spoke with a southern accent. We have a south in Sweden, too, you see. He came from a place very close to Denmark. And I'd never met anyone from that area, so sometimes I had a little trouble understanding what he said. A couple of times I said yes, when I should have said no. (laughs) So, moving right along. (laughs) In uh, six months we were engaged, and a year after that we were married. And... uh, 
And of course, the most marvelous part about this man was he didn't drink. And I had promised myself, you know, and I used to say to my dad, when I meet someone, it'll be someone who doesn't drink, because I didn't want any part of that. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> when we'd been married six months, Johnny said to me, how would you like to go to America? And all my dreams were coming true, you know. If it was one thing I knew, I wanted to learn to speak English. And when he said we were going to Los Angeles, I knew it. We were going to be in Van Johnson's backyard, you see. <laughs> Uh, that was before I knew everything there is to know about Van Johnson. <laughs> anyway, neither here nor there. We came to America, California, and drinking was not a part of our life. We, we were busy becoming Americans, you know, and uh, learning the language. John spoke English, but I didn't, but I learned quickly, listening to radio and and uh, it was really before, at least before we had television. Anyway, after a year out here, we had our first child, a girl. And when she was three years old, we should go back to Sweden and show her off. And our families really wanted us back again. But but we knew by that time that we wanted to stay in America. And but we went home. And uh, in those days, you you flew to New York and then you went by ship over. And John's relatives in New York said, now when you go across, instead of taking Dramamine for seasickness, why don't you drink scotch? You know what I said? I said, what a wonderful idea. I forgot everything I had ever said about drinking, you know. And I tell you, that scotch, I loved it just as much as you do. And, and uh, we had a ball on the ship going over, and, and when we came home, people were throwing parties for us, and... It was just wonderful, I thought. And uh, when we got back to the States, uh, Johnny had a job with an expense account. So now we really set out to have fun. In fact, we had so much fun that in no time at all we had four children. <laughs> so, so we had moved down to Corona de Mar at that time. And uh, I'd be on the beach during the week with the kids. And then on the weekends we'd party. We'd get a babysitter and we'd go off and, and have fun. And that went on for a few years. And then I began to have second thoughts about all this. I, uh, it, it be began to remind me how it had been at home with quarrels. And you know when you live in party like that, there are jealousies and accusations and recriminations and that started to happen to us. And I, I decided to have a talk with John the first of many <laughs> and uh, and I said you know this drinking life it's no good it's not good for the children and it's not good for us and I said we're going to give it up well he asked me to run along he wasn't interested in my plan at all so we still had parties at home and we still went out but now I couldn't have fun anymore I had to watch what he was doing you know so that I did. We moved to Anaheim and uh, to get a bigger house and uh, we came in there and of course the beach people were a little more bohemian you know but the East Anaheim crowd they were church people and they were 
civic-minded and they were in PTA and were doing all those right things for their families. So now I wanted us to be that way. But of course, by this time, Johnny was a daily drinker and, uh, uh, you know, they were just a little slow for him. But uh, he tried to fit in and John especially, he's very gregarious and friendly and and uh, he'd go around in those homes and he'd always carry his own bottle with him, you know, he didn't want to put anyone out. He wanted to make sure there was booze, naturally. <laughs> I, I thought it was some sort of generosity, but I figured that out soon. And, uh, and you know, and you heard about him running after the car and stuff like that was going on. And weekends were a pain, you know. I was, because I grew up with this and I used to see my father in drunk in a town, you know, and, and we were in small towns where the railroad was being built and, and he'd be walking through the town and I would try to, to walk places where, where people wouldn't see me with him. I mean, I was so embarrassed by him. And now here I had my very own, you know, on weekends. And <laughs> God, he was always out there. I felt making a fool of himself, you know. Everybody loved him, though, you know. And I stayed home and got tighter and more nervous and more angry every time. And uh, one Sunday afternoon, I'm just going to tell you this one. It's so It was so typical. Somebody came to the house and said, have you seen Bonnie? Well, we all had three, four kids, you know, and uh, and I went and looked in my bedroom. No, she wasn't there. And uh, you know, so, so she said, "Well, Bonnie is lost. We we have to find her." Well, you know, in that neighborhood, we lost the kid a day. You know, it was no big deal. You know, you just check your rooms, and uh, sometimes your own kids weren't there, but somebody else's might be playing with the toys. You know. So, but John was there, and he had a, Bonnie is lost, oh my God, and he poured himself a big drink, and he hopped on Katrina's little stingray bike, and he took off, you know, and uh, looking for Bonnie, and you could hear him up and down the street, you know, Bonnie, oh God, and then he'd come back home, and he said, have they found her, and I said, no, I don't think so. So he filled up his glass again, and all. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. I remember I was reading, uh, I was always trying to improve my mind, you know. I couldn't do anything about him, but I, I, I was trying to be better. And I was reading Sinclair Lewis, and in one of his books was a story about a family who had a, had a drunk, you know, and they hid him in the attic, you know. They locked him up, kept him up there. And I thought, that's what I'd like to do with John, you know. Of course, I'd let him out to go to work, but... <laughs> and, uh, well, I got sick very soon. I, thought, I think what happened to me was that when I met John and married John, I thought, you know, my life was not going to be like my mother's. I wasn't going to be stood up on every appointment. I wasn't going to have to stand by the window and wait, you know. My life was going to be different, and here it was happening all over again, you know. And uh, some days the only way I could function was if I was angry. If I was angry, I could get my work done, but if I really let myself feel and realize how sad our life had become, I couldn't move. I just sat and cried. 
And uh, once in a while I'd, I'd pick on one of my neighbors and tell her parts of it. You know, I really didn't want anyone to know how bad it was, but I'd, I'd tell her. And then I'd go home, and then I'd start feeling disloyal. And then I'd start thinking, now she knows about us. And then I wouldn't see her anymore. And I did this with one woman after the other in the neighborhood, you know. I cut myself off from everybody. And uh, I, I, I just, I'd go to the market and pick some stuff. And, and if somebody spoke to me, I'd leave my basket and I'd go home. And uh, I think even Johnny could see that I was in trouble because I, I was beginning to just not want to see people. And uh, we had one more of our talks. As Johnny said, we we talked and made up and started over a lot, you know. But this time Johnny said, I can see that this drinking is really hurting you. He'd been in on a few episodes with my dad in Sweden. And he said, I tell you what, I'm going to give it up. It isn't worth it to me if it's going to do this to you. And he said, in three weeks' time, I'll have these jobs finished and we'll take a little trip. We'll go to Palm Springs and take the kids and um, we'll be fine. And you know, those three weeks were wonderful. We, we were friends again and we started to take our walks again and the children began to relax around him and we were going to be fine. On the morning when we should leave for Palm Springs, when I woke up, Johnny was drunk. He'd started to drink during the night. And I just couldn't believe it. I, it just threw me. And uh, and I thought, we shouldn't go, we shouldn't drive. But then we went anyhow, and it was a disaster. We drove much too fast, and we came to Palm Springs, and he should take us to a restaurant, and he fell in the restaurant. And, uh, you know, it was terrible. And um, I tried to take my life that weekend, because, you see, I had... I had figured it out. There had been a love before me, and I thought Johnny was sad that he hadn't married that other girl, and he couldn't tell me, and that's why he drank. And uh, and also the children, I never really had any time for them. I, I could barely pay attention to them, because I had to worry about him, what he was doing, and who he was with, and all this, you know. And I came to feel that everybody would be better off without me. Well, I got very sick, I took some pills, and I got very sick, and we got back home to Anaheim again. And it was soon after that our minister came to call on us, and I sure wasn't about to tell him how we lived, you know. He was the last person I wanted to know about us. But he was so kind and thoughtful that I began to tell him about my father's drinking, and pretty soon I was telling him about John's drinking. And he said to me, why don't you come and talk to me for an hour once a week? And if John wants to come, he can have another hour. And I thought, oh, he won't do that. He's so selfish. But the next day I told John about it. And Johnny said, of course I'll go. How kind of him. And that surprised me. And uh, so now we were getting help. We went to that man on different days and talked to him. And it did help. It, uh, we didn't fight so much anymore. And, uh, but it was over a year later when I came to him one morning that the minister said to me, you know, I do think John is an alcoholic. Now, I had thought of John as an alcoholic for years already. It was no secret to me. 
But when he said it, it seemed more serious. And uh, he said, if he is an alcoholic, he has three ways to go. He'll either go crazy from it, or he will die from it, or he can get help. I never even heard the last part. It didn't register with me. I can still remember how I felt that morning walking home from his study. I was completely against the wall. I finally realized I wasn't going to be able to fix John. But I even realized the minister couldn't do it because I'd seen him try to, to, to stop. And the minister couldn't do it. But I even understood that John couldn't do it because I'd seen him try to stop several times and he'd go back to drinking. And I think something happened to me that morning. I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now because I've seen it happen to people who come to Al-Anon. You come to a place where you finally give up. You, you have to let go of the whole thing. Nothing you do or say makes any difference. And I think we have, that has to happen to us. We have to get out of the way. It, it can't be done by preaching to them or, or threatening or anything. Uh, at that time I was asked to go home to Sweden. My father was ill and, and, uh, I took my little boy and I left the girls with John. The minister said, we'll find a woman to look after them. And I went home and while I was there, I, I started to think I, I, I can't live with the drinking any longer. I had such violent feelings of anger within me, and uh, I, I knew, I remember one night after a long fight, we had argued and screamed at each other, and of course Johnny passed out, you know, and uh, and I was still going, you know, <laughs> my, my motor was running, and, and I stood there and I thought, I wonder if I can hold this pillow over his head, you know. I mean, this is, this is the father of my children. This is how, how crazy and angry it gets. Well, when I got back to the States again, I found a little half-day job uh, as an insurance agent. And uh, all the kids were now in school. The youngest was in first grade for a few hours, you know. So I had that half-day job. And... Uh, this man was a very successful insurance agent and he was president of this and that organization and he was being groomed for politics and and uh, he looked very nice. He came in rushing into the office every morning in his three-piece suit, you know, and he looked so spiffy. And uh, Johnny used to look like that, but he didn't anymore. He kind of shuffled when he walked, you know. And of course, I'm not about doing a little knifing when I think I have some ammunition. So I'd hold this fellow up to John and that uh, if he could be like him, we might have something. Well, John has been that man's sponsor for the last 20 years. <laughs> Central office called him to make a 12-step call at one of the jails. <laughs> and, and there he was. And Johnny said, there is some justice after all. <laughs> and... Uh, John used to drive me to work in the morning. We only had the one car. And, uh, and then we'd say a few civil words to each other, you know. Nothing deep, you understand. And, uh, 
And then by the time he picked me up in the afternoon, he came straight from the bar and he was drunk. And we used to stop at the liquor store on the way home. And it was there in the parking lot one afternoon. Johnny said, see that guy over there with the brown paper bag? And I said, yes. He said, he's an alcoholic. I said, how do you know that? He said, every day when I'm here, he's here. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, anyway, so, well, I said we weren't fighting anymore, but we did have one more Johnny Brook at the house. Carolyn, our oldest child, she was 13, she was in junior high, and it's going to be an open house. And of course, Johnny always insisted on attending the kids' functions, you know, he, I, he really, he, I think he felt he couldn't be as bad as I said he was if he could do that. And of course, it was a pain to have along, you know. Have you taken a drunk to PTA lately? <laughs> God, he'd be weaving, you know, and you could smell him, the whiskey across the room, you know. And I was always nervous that he'd put his hand on one of the teachers. I mean, you, you just didn't know what could happen, you know. And uh, so here it was. And so Johnny said, well, it's time to go to open house. And I said, oh, Johnny, you look so tired. Why don't you stay home today? Well, of course, then he had to go when he heard I didn't want him to go. But then Carolyn spoke up. And our children had not participated in our quarrels at all. They never said anything to the dad. But then Carolyn said, Dad, I don't want you to come to my school. You're drunk and you always embarrass me. And Johnny slapped her across the face. And it stopped us all three. <laughs> that, that, uh, I know what it did to me. I returned to when I was 13 and couldn't keep my mouth shut. You know, remember how that was. And... Uh, I thought about this for several days. You know, I uh, I thought this is my first teenager. I have three more coming along, and this is going to be some circus, you know. So we had one more of our talks, and I said, no more. I'm not going to let the kids get used to being slapped around. Either you have to go down and try that Alcoholics Anonymous that the minister had talked about, or you have to get out. And, of course, I didn't know anything about Alamon. I didn't know about make, don't make threats you don't intend to carry out. And, uh, you know, I, we just continue as we were. And then one night, uh, Johnny came home, and he, he came in the bedroom and said, let's go out in the living room and talk. And he said, I, uh, I'm not drinking. I quit drinking. I've been going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't think I have to drink again. And as you heard, I said to him, your eyes look different. And that was certainly God's grace, because what I thought was not even in the garage. I mean, that was, I was, you know, that was hard. Yeah, I'd seen his stash out there. And, uh, and so, so now, every day when he came to pick me up, he was sober. And he was full of stories about Alcoholics Anonymous and the Yolanda Club in Anaheim. And then he started to talk about Charlie. And guess what this Charlie told me today? And this is what Charlie said. And I said, well, bring him home. I wanted to meet him. I wanted to see what he had that I didn't have. I'd said some of those things too, you know. 
And so one night after the meeting, here they came, and here was this Charlie, and he was a tall, tan, nice-looking man, and he was sober, and uh, and I could see that, you know. And uh, so now, here it was, now he had sobriety, and uh, it was wonderful, you know. And every time, every day after dinner, sometimes he came and had dinner with us, Charlie would show up to take Johnny to a meeting. And uh, they'd get up and say, we're going to a meeting, see you at 11. And uh, and I that lasted for about a month. I was thrilled about that, you know. <laughs> and then I started to think, it's still his show. I'm still stuck here at home, you know, and uh, uh, with the kids. And he's out every night. And uh, I said to Johnny, is it really necessary to go to a meeting every night? He said, I'll check. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was necessary. <laughs> and of course, you know, at the time when they get up and leave in a house full of a big family, you know, that's at the time it's nobody's turn to do the dishes. Nobody can find their homework. There's no shampoo. Who wore my sweater today? And on and on. You even remember that little John, who was the youngest, he was six years old, Carolyn had said, Little John has to do dishes too, you know, just because he's a boy. So she said, Little John, get out there in the kitchen, start doing the dishes. Little John said, I've got cramps. (laughs) 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 Well, anyway. So after I said that, do you have to go to a meeting every night, Johnny said then, uh, he talked to Charlie about this, and uh, they started to invite me to open meetings and uh, at, a, at the Ilano Club. But now I have to tell you about the Ilano Club. It was some place. It was really downtown. I mean, I had ideas about a club I wanted to join, but this was not one of them. <laughs> it was next door to a car wash, and uh, there wasn't a chair in the place, but there were 35 old sofas with sleazy bedspreads on them. God, and I can't even describe the smoke, you know. You, you just couldn't see you all in, in that smoke. And, you know, and, of course, over the years, the, the, the sloshier John got, the more proper I got. You know, you sort of overcompensate. So here's this Miss Pris coming into this club, you know. <laughs> but, you know, that was the first gift from Alcoholics Anonymous to me personally. I just loved that place. I had no trouble going into that place. I felt so safe in there and so full of hope, and I could see those people had been heavy drinkers, but I could see they were sober, and I was so impressed with that, you know. I just never had, I, I just loved going there. Uh, after we'd been in a year, they moved to another place. Uh, I think that other place <laughs> fell down. It was <laughs> so bad. But anyway, and uh, and to that funky place came all the terrific AA, AA speakers, you know, all the wonderful speakers. That's where I first heard Cliff Walker. If you, if you see some old tapes, get those tapes. Cliff Walker and Norm Alpey and 
Chuxy, of course, and uh, and Clancy came. He was four years sober then, and uh, and funny and tragic, you know. And uh, and there was a beautiful AA woman who came. Her name was Marion Forbes, and uh, she had a she was very pretty, and she had a white cashmere coat on, you know. And of course, I went into my Alanon mode. Uh, as we call it, I, I where, where can we lay her coat? You know, certainly not on one of those sofas. Not to worry, she wore it, and uh, <laughs> she was very spiritual with them like this in the room. And I ate all this up. You know, I just thought it was so wonderful. John told about the religious education he had had. I hadn't had none. You know, I'd lived up in the wilderness and. Uh, and moved from place to place. There was never time. I was not even christened because I was in a place where there was no church. But here I hear all these spiritual things, you know, and I was so thrilled with it. And I could see they had applied them to themselves, you know. And of course, Johnny bought the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous right away. And I read it right away. Because I knew I could better help him with his program, right? <laughs> if I read the book. And I loved the book, you know. I still do, and uh, I, I thought, oh, it's so so simply written. It's like an arrow into your heart, you know. And uh, by this time, John had asked me to quit my job and come home again, and I did that. I loved that. I, I wanted to be home when the kids got home from school. And Johnny has been able to have his part of his office at home, so he was there a lot. And Charlie didn't seem to have anywhere to go either, so he was there a lot. <laughs> Uh, but I didn't care, you know. They were going to work this beautiful program, you know. And, uh, except I could never hear them talk about it. I mean, I thought there would be maybe some written tests or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, they, ne they, they told a lot of funny jokes and they laughed a lot. That was all I could hear. And they, <laughs> they went over Charlie's automobile. He had an old Austin Healy that they were always looking into, you know, but I never heard him talk about anything. And, uh, but then I figured it out. Johnny hadn't told Charlie what he'd put me through. See, <laughs> Charlie didn't know. So I would have to straighten him out on that. <laughs> One sunny morning, I can still remember it, I got in the car and I drove over to Charlie and Virginia's house and I told them everything. Palm Springs, the whole thing. And uh, they didn't say very much. <laughs> I remember they looked at their shoes a lot. And uh, they must have been so embarrassed for me, you know. Well, anyway, Charlie began to talk to me about some women he knew. He said they meet in the back room of the club. And he said, you'll just love them. They're so nice. I thought, well, he's been good to us. Rude, I'm not. So I went there, and that's how I came to my first Al-Anon meeting. And they sure told me, they said we follow the same 12 steps that the alcoholics do. And they said we don't talk about the alcoholic in the meetings. I had a little trouble with that. But <laughs> and, uh, so now I was in Al-Anon. And, uh, and I must say, I've heard UAAs talk about how difficult it is to come in and, uh, start working these steps after you've hit bottom. 
Well, you ought to try it coming in perfect. It is hard. <laughs> what are you going to do when there's nothing wrong with you? I mean, you have nothing to work with. But I tried. And I got a sponsor, Myrna was her name. I used to call her, Myrna, you want to hear what he said to me last night? And Myrna would say, have you made the beds? I still have to do anything. But I'd go make the beds, and then I'd call her back. and say, are you ready for this? You want to hear? I said, have you done the dishes? And uh, I, I'm so grateful that she kept it simple like that, because I, I was all set to get spiritual and beautiful like that lovely AA woman, you know. And uh, But that was not to be, you know. I had to keep my feet on the ground. And uh, it's so funny. You would think, you know, that uh, when you people come into AA and stop drinking, that we all would roll over. Well, don't count on it, because <laughs> I sure didn't. And, you know, later when John became that my ex-boss sponsor, when he came to pick him up at jail, he called the man's wife and said, well, uh, I have Lee here now. He's coming out of jail today. Can I bring him home? Oh, no, she said. Can't they keep him another week? <laughs> We're having a wedding here this weekend, and he'll only be in the way. <laughs> so so you see how it is? And, uh, I, but I, I tried. I, I could hear, you know. I, I'm not uh, completely dense. And I could feel and, and see that there is a program here for me. It was just that I, I, I couldn't, I was so blocked with, with the being mad at the alcoholic, you know, and, and afraid that they were going to put anything over on me. That was my worst fear, always, you know. And I can remember the first time I read the do's and don'ts. That's something we have in Al-Anon. We have nine do's and ten don'ts. And I'm not going to read them all to you, but couple of dues were uh, learn the facts about alcoholism and go to Al-Anon meetings often. Then we came to the don'ts, and it said, don't try to nag, dominate. Don't try to dominate, nag, and complain, you know, scold and complain. And the next one was, don't lose your temper. And then the next one was, don't keep bringing up the past. And then... Don't keep checking up on the alcoholic. And I thought, oh, great. Isn't this going to make it cushy for the alcoholic? You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, I tell you, it took me a couple of years before I realized if I could stop doing those stones, I'd be free, you know. But I couldn't see that at all. I thought it was all for their benefit. I thought, no wonder they're laughing it up in those AA rooms. You know? <laughs> and uh, I had one thing. I have to check my time here. I had one thing that I uh, used to do during the drinking. I used to hold up to John how he was hurting the kids by never teaching them anything, never taking them anywhere. And I knew I could get to him with this because his father had died when he was so young. And uh, I'd watch him on a Sunday afternoon trying to, to teach them something and die with them. Uh, uh, and, and he'd be shaking and sweating. And I'd look over at him and say, no, nah, serves him right, you know. But, of course, now I was doing the same thing. Now I couldn't hold up to drinking anymore. But, you know, when you have a bunch of kids, they fight and cry. 
And then I said, yes, John, after all, you're an alcoholic. And all that drinking must have damaged him. And, you know, Johnny wouldn't defend himself anymore. He'd just say, yes, Karen, I'm so sorry, and I'm trying to do better. And, you know, I did this thing over and over again. And each time I did it, I felt smaller and smaller inside. And so I talked to Mona about it, and I said, Mona, this is what I'm doing. And, uh, I, and Mona said, Karen, you can't do that anymore. You, you have to forgive him. She said, and you have, you have to let go of the past. You can't bring up the past anymore. And she said, nobody can fix the past. You can't fix it. Johnny can't fix it. The only way you can have a better past is to have a better present. And she said, I think it's time you take your inventory. And she sort of stressed your inventory. <laughs> she said, it's time you take your fourth step. And I was always willing, you know. I read the long form. I read the one in the AA 12 and 12, and I read the ones in our books. And uh, my whole reaction to the fourth step was, what did I ever do? I stayed home and took care of the kids. <laughs> and I told that to Myrna, and that was my fifth step. <laughs> and there I was, you know. And I had just done this thing again, you know. I had had put that knife in about his being an alcoholic. And I drove to my meeting, and I came in there, and uh, I felt so alone and so isolated, and I thought, I don't even have a right to be in Alamon. They, they think I'm doing well, but I'm not the same way at home as I am in the meetings. And, uh, and you know, something happened to me. Something came back to me that had happened five years before sobriety, and here we were in our second year on the program. One morning, Johnny had to, he had to go to San Diego on a job, and he said, do you want to come along? And I said, I sure do. I had some accusations to make to him that morning. And for some reason, we took Katrina with us, and she was three years old, the youngest girl. And, um, well, I started out in that car, and I screamed, and I swore, and I cried. I even tried to open the car door. And Johnny tried to calm me down, and little Katrina begged me to stop, and there was no stopping me. I was just insane with jealousy and rage. And uh, we came to San Diego, and Johnny had to take care of his job, and we drove home, and I did the same thing all the way home. I was just crazy. And when we got to the house, my mom was there with the other kids, and I hopped out of that car, and I said, Hi, how's everybody? And do you know, I had never once in all those years thought about those terrible hours. It had never bothered me at all until I could see it when I sat in that meeting. And that time, <laughs> that time when we should go to Palm Springs and Johnny was drunk. And I thought, we shouldn't go, we shouldn't drive. But then a cool thought in the back of my mind said, oh yes, we'll go. And if something happens on the road, maybe that'll scare him, you know. Well, you know, I was the children's champion. I was the sane and sober one. That's what I did. 
you know, put them on the line. And uh, I don't know, sometimes it hits me. And another time, I had taken my girl shopping, and uh, we left the baby at home, and we went shopping. Oh, you sweetheart. Thank <laughs> you. We went shopping, and we had lunch, and on the way home in the car, I thought, God, I hope the baby is all right. And then I thought, well, if he isn't, and, and we came home, and Johnny was passed out in the lawn swing, and the baby was sitting on the steps on the pool playing, you know. And I was in my group. You know, I blame that whole thing on Johnny. And, you know, by that time, Johnny was a daily drinker. He was a morning drinker. Every Saturday, he got up early and started drinking and passed out and woke up in the afternoon. And I knew that. So, and then on that trip home to Sweden, my parents were so happy to see us, you know, and this little baby was their first grandchild. And my father had got tickets on the train. We were going up north to see my mother's people, and uh, we were going to have such a celebration. But he was a little drunk that Saturday afternoon. And, you know, I created such a scene that I made him stay behind. He couldn't come with us. And uh, I can still remember my mother on the train trying to hide that she was crying. That was me, you know. So these things were coming to me during a few days only. It, it, it just took a few days and it all sort of came over me. And uh, I finally understood I couldn't pass myself off as a victim any longer. This was my stuff. And as far as me forgiving John, I knew that John was forgiven. I understood that. Because he was changing. Whoever should forgive John had forgiven him. And uh, now I needed forgiveness. And uh, so I told this to Myrna, what I had discovered. And then I had met Elsa Chamberlain at that time. And I told her. And she helped me so much because she said, well, what do you think we have the sixth step for? That's where you have become ready to ask God to help you to change. And of course, this all happened a long time ago, as you can see. And uh, we had such a wonderful, peaceful life. And we have had so much fun during these years. And uh, Johnny has these guys come to the house, you know, and talk. And some of them are so, especially the young kids, they're so crazy. But, but you know, they want to be turned their life around. You know, it's just amazing to me. Still, it's, it's still a miracle to me that it can happen. And, uh, and of course, I'm in Al-Anon. Uh, this year, our meeting, which Elsa Chamberlain started, I'm going to use you, Hank. <laughs> uh, this meeting, Elsa started, we have our 40th anniversary this year. And, isn't that and I can be, apparently they don't know that I'm a star. I'm always making coffee. I mean, I get so tired of making coffee. 
I'm back to making coffee this month. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I want to tell you, because Al-Anon is such a powerful program, on, on the face of it, you know, there, there was an AA woman down in Laguna. She wasn't too fond of us Al-Anon. And she was not fond of me, and I know why. She wanted my Johnny, and she couldn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and she called us Alanons, the pastel ladies. Oh, was I mad about that? I thought, you fool, you wouldn't, you, you couldn't stand for a month what we live with for years, you know. I that. <laughs> anyway, so I want to tell you this story. Uh, this happened in the first year I was in Alanon. Uh, one of my Alanon friends said, I have to go to work. You have to make this 12-step call. And I said, okay. And I went to knock on this door. And this woman opened the door a little bit. And I said, uh, I'm here from Al-Anon. And she let me in. And all her drapes were drawn. It's very dim in, in, in the room. And she spoke to me in whispers. And she was married to this very successful commercial builder. And she was so afraid of him. And he was gone that week, and that's how come she dared to call Alana. And, uh, and of course, nothing had happened to me yet. I had nothing I could share, you know. I really didn't feel, know how I felt about Alana. And, but I had sense enough to ask if she wanted to come with me to a meeting. And we went that night. And, uh, and, uh, she heard something in there, or felt something, you know. And we began to go to Alanon together. And uh, I remember she had a long green Buick automobile that she charged up again. She started to drive a little. She'd been, she was extremely fearful, you know. And uh, and she signed up for a business class at night school. And we kept going to Alanon. But of course he was back again, so he'd be out on that porch glaring at me, you know, when I came to pick her up. I kind of made my stuff real small in the car, but she'd come out and we'd go. And, uh, and of course I had already heard in AA that you can't promote this thing, you know, you can't. But I threw that rule out the door, you know. <laughs> and, uh, I had Johnny make a 12 step call on this guy. <laughs> and he, t he told Johnny that if you show your face here again, I'll kill you, you know. Well, that didn't work. And, uh, in fact, he took off his shirt and showed Jan he'd had several back operations, and he was actually on morphine and booze. But uh, his wife and I kept going to Alanon. But then one night when I came to get her, this guy had had it. I mean, he had had it. He was out on that porch, and he was screaming, if you get in that car with that silly woman one more time, you needn't come back, he said. I'll change the locks, I'll close all the accounts, You'll be begging in the streets. He said, that woman has broken up our marriage. She's broken up our home. And he was livid, you know. And he was practically foaming at the mouth, you know. And I sat in my car and I thought, yeah, I'll go back in with him. This was a dumb idea from the beginning. <laughs> I was scared of death of this guy. But she didn't move. She just let him go on. And then when he drew his breath a moment, she said, uh, I'm sorry, but I had to leave. I had to go to my meeting. She walked right past him, and we drove off. And, uh, well, now he could see that he couldn't scare her anymore, you know. 
So he said, okay. He said, I'll go to one of those dumb meetings, and then I don't want to hear about this nonsense anymore. And he said, thank you. And uh, it was October, and it was time for for a Southern California convention, and it was held in Anaheim. And uh, we took them there to the convention center on Sunday morning. And that place was just vibrating. You know how it is after a convention. There were about 5,000 people there, and everybody was so high on gratitude and happiness, you know, and all the speakers and all the friends. And and he stood there. He was like made out of stone, you know, but he didn't run. And we went into the meeting, and Chuck C. spoke that morning. And uh, I tell you, 10 minutes into Chuck's talk, we saw it happen to this guy. I, I can't explain it. It was as if something slid off of it. And he reached over and took his wife's hand. You know, this, this is what we, we get to, to see and witness, you know. And of course, this woman, she had found her inner strength in Al-Anon. And she left him alone. She stopped begging him. She stopped, you know, she started to do something for herself. And that's what we do in Al-Anon, you know. We let go, and we, we, we go to our meetings, and we learn about ourselves. And uh, isn't that a powerful thing, you know, by just being together in, in rooms like this, and uh, and it can happen. I mean, the, the stopping drinking is beyond me. I, I, I mean, I... I'm trying to stop eating candy. I can't even do that, you know. So, oh yes, thank you, Don. This man died several years ago, and he had 18 years of sobriety, and he and his wife helped so many people, you know. And of course, we've all seen things like that. So, and the kids are doing fine. We're hoping that our son will get married. I was telling Vince here, He's 41 years old. <laughs> oh, he's been engaged, and he's been this and that. And um, I told Vince I, I wanted to get married, but he can still be trained. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, well, you know, when I was young and newly married, if anyone had talked to me about alcoholism, I would have said, no way, not in my life. Hadn't I found this beautiful man who didn't drink? No, it was not going to happen to me. And then again, if someone had come to me during those last dark days of alcoholism and talked about this way of life, I wouldn't have understood. There was nothing in me that, that could see that I could be a part of anything like this. So I'm so grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous and to Alanon and to all of you. Thank you. Thank you.